This sermon was preached by Peter Nakotra, head pastor of Grace Baptist Church in Woodhaven, Queens. Grace Baptist was planted in 2001 and is seeking to reach South Queens and North Brooklyn with the gospel. You can find more sermons from this series and many others at www.gbcny.org. Please feel free to distribute the sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Well, in Matthew uh, chapter 24, verse 3, the disciples ask Jesus two questions. Uh, and the answer to those questions is basically taken us all the way through Matthew 24 and will now take us all the way through Matthew 25, commonly known as the Olivet Discourse. Uh, and what they wanted to know was, when was the destruction of Jerusalem, which he talked about at the end of Matthew 23, when would that be, and the destruction of the temple, and what would be the sign of his coming or the end of the world? And Jesus answers them by saying that the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple would happen actually in their generation. And then he gives them signs or norms or patterns of things that will occur throughout all generations. And he tells them that these things will intensify the closer and closer we get to the end of time. But as to the day and the hour of his return, no man can know. It's not the Father's will that any of us know that. But he wants us to be looking for it and to be anticipating it and to be living life in light of it. Which is why he warns us to watch and to be ready. Because he is coming and he is coming at an hour that no man expects. And to illustrate this, he uses the people in Noah's day. You see, they had heard the gospel preached to them by Noah for 120 years as they saw the ark being built. Uh, and Noah told them of the judgment to come. And he told them their need to turn away from their sin and to turn to the living God. Yet they do not believe and did not believe. So when the flood came, it, it took them totally by surprise as they were going about life as usual. As the word said, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. They had absolutely no care and no concern about the judgment to come of their sin, which was to come. Then in verses 45 to 51, Jesus tells his disciples a parable, a parable of two servants. There was the faithful and wise servant, and then there was the evil servant. And how when the master of the house went away for a long time, the faithful and wise servant, he followed his master's orders, uh, and he took care of his master's household. While the evil servant, seeing that his master was away for a long time, uh, and, and, and seeing that he wasn't coming back anytime soon... Uh, he lived riotously. He beat the other servants. And when the master did return unexpectedly, that evil servant was destroyed. So Jesus has been telling them that they don't know when he's going to return, but that he is definitely going to return. And they need to be ready. And they need to be prepared for it. Because to be unprepared for it is an evidence that one was never really a follower of Jesus Christ to begin with. And now in Matthew 25, Jesus will again warn them to be prepared. Be prepared for his coming with the parable of the ten virgins, which we'll look at in a minute. But also the parable that follows, which is the parable of the talents. And it seems like, as we go through Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, particularly in chapter 24, that he's being redundant. And he is being redundant. And that is because he wants those who claim that they follow him to make sure that they really follow him. Right? He wants us to live for him every single day, as if he were to return this day. Well, Matthew 25 opens with the parable of the ten virgins. And it's important that we understand 
that the parable has a main point, which we'll find in verse 13, which is that something he already said in Matthew 24, 44, which was, watch, be ready, because I'm coming back at an hour you do not expect. You don't know the day or you don't know the hour the Son of Man is coming. And therefore, not every detail, not every aspect of the parable has a deep spiritual meaning. Right? They are there to help support the main idea or to make the story understandable. In fact, there are many unanswered parts in this parable. And they really don't need to be answered, quite honestly. Like, uh, did the five foolish virgins actually buy more oil or not? Or where is the bride in this story? Because, quite honestly, we don't really talk about the bride. Right? And, and why is the bridegroom late? And so on. The point is, they're not of extreme importance. As is, the virgins being prepared... Uh, to meet the bridegroom when he came and what that actually means. So with that in view, I want to look at this parable using a three-point outline, and if you have a bulletin, it'll be on the back of that, that bulletin. First is the difference between the virgins. Secondly, the discussion between the virgins. And lastly, the destiny of the virgins. So let me read verses 1 to 4 again, and let's look at the difference between the virgins. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. Right? Now, before we get into the differences between the virgins, the wise and the foolish, I think it's going to be helpful to explain what the Jewish marriage custom was because it wasn't like the way we know marriage. Right? The Jewish custom for marriage or how they set it up actually took place in three stages. Uh, the first stage was the engagement stage which was sort of like an official contract between the two fathers who were giving their son and their daughter to each other. The second stage was called the betrothal stage, or betrothal, which was an official ceremony, like a wedding ceremony, uh, in which the couple would actually exchange vows and legally be bound to each other as husband and wife. And the only way that could be broken was either by death or by divorce. And if you know the story about Mary becoming pregnant and Joseph finding out and he's going to put away privately. Well, they're in the betrothal stage. They're in that stage. Uh, and, and during this betrothal period of stage, which lasted about a year, um, the, the couple did not come together physically, nor did they live together. The groom lived with his family usually or by himself, and the bride lived with her family until the third stage. And the third stage was the wedding feast or the banquet. Uh, and it would be the most festive of occasions. Uh, and this celebration would actually last for like seven days or a whole week. Uh, and, and you know the story, of the, the, the first miracle in the Gospel of John, where is uh, the wedding of Cana. That's what that is. That is a wedding feast. Right? That is a wedding feast. Uh, and, and this is what is described in this parable, the third stage. You see, the custom was that the bridegroom would go to the bride's home uh, where she would be with her bridesmaids who were almost always unmarried women, which is why they are called virgins. Uh, and when, when the bridegroom and his groomsmen would get close to coming to the bride's house, uh, the bridesmaids would then go out to meet him uh, and, and his wedding party with the groomsmen, and they would go out with lit lamps in their hands. Uh, and, and then they would all go to the bride's house, collect the bride, and then from the bride's house, all of them would proceed then joyfully joyfully going to the bridegroom's house. You get all of that so far? This, 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 this. They're going back and forth. Right? And, and they would be, as I said, joyfully singing along the way with their lamps lit. And when they got to the bridegroom's house, the celebration begins. 
The celebration begins. Now, the ones who had the lamps, uh, they were the ones that were in the wedding party. And to be in the wedding party and not have a lit lamp would be a breach of etiquette. Right? It, would, it would kind of be like today a bridesmaid not having the same dress that all the other bridesmaids had or a corsage or something like that. It would just be a, a breach of etiquette. Right? And so, so, so you know, they would have lamps. And the reason the virgins had lamps at all, for that matter, is because usually the bridegroom came at night as the banquets always started at night. Now, all of this was very common to the disciples. You and I are like, well, this is crazy. We just do a little 50-minute service here, three hours there. We're done, honeymoon, that's it, right? That's not how they did it, right? But it was very common to the disciples. They had seen it. They had participated in it. They knew those festivities. So they thoroughly understood what he was saying when he was talking about this wedding feast. So then Jesus says to his disciples, the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who went out to meet the bridegroom. And the aspect of the kingdom that he's talking about is what the kingdom will be like when he comes back. Because the context of almost all of 24, and certainly all of 25, is when he comes back, the second coming. And he says there are five foolish virgins and five wise virgins. Uh, and I don't think there's any spiritual significance about the number 10 here or the number 5 at all. The point is not the number of them, but that there are some wise and some foolish. And all 10 of them had a lamp. Now, you need to know a lamp is not the kind of lamp that you and I think of when we think of lamp, uh, but it's kind of like a torch. It meant more like a torch. Would have been a long stick that sort of had a netting on top that they would put a coarse rag in the netting. Uh, and then what they would do is they would soak uh, the rag with oil and then light it, and it would burn for a while. And what makes the wise virgins wise is that they took a small flask of oil with them to pour on the rag. And what makes the foolish virgins foolish is they took no oil. And again, this was a very simple, very common slice of life vignette that everybody in that day would have understood. And so we see the difference. Now let's look at the discussion between the virgins, or the bridesmaids, verses 5 to 9. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out and meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you. But go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. Now we read that the bridegroom is delayed. And why he is delayed in this, we don't know. He just is. And because he is delayed, all of the virgins get tired and they fall asleep. And then at midnight they hear the cry, the bridegroom is coming, and they, and, 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 and they get up to go out and meet him. And they jump up, they get their lamps, they try to light them, and they start on their path toward him. And the foolish virgins realize that their lamps go out because they have no oil to pour on their rags. It seems they try to light the rag without the oil, uh, but it quickly gets snuffed out because verse 8 says... For our lamps are going out. So their lamps can't stay lit because they have no oil on the lamp. And the foolish virgins, they see their predicament. And they ask the wise virgins, help us out here. Give us some of your oil. And the wise virgins say, no dice. We're not going to give you any. We can't give you our oil because if we give you our oil, it won't be enough for both of us. And nobody will have a lit lamp. Now, that's really the, the story of the parable. 
And it, it is really kind of simple in its, in its story. But I want to look at uh, and see what the people and things in this parable represent. Because they do represent things. As a parable is, that's what a parable is. It's a, an earthly story with a spiritual heavenly meaning. The ten virgins in which the whole parable centers around, they represent the visible church. They represent the visible church or those who claim to believe in Jesus. They are those who call themselves a Christian. And almost all of them would be in a church. The five wise virgins represent those who are truly born again. Uh, they know God and are known by him because they have been saved by him. They are regenerated. They are redeemed. And they sincerely are the children of God. And the five foolish virgins, well, they are those who claim to be Christians and are not. They have most likely been baptized. They are most likely members of a local church. They take the Lord's Supper. They participate in church services. They are elders. They are deacons. They are trustees. They are evangelists. They serve on church committees. They listen to sermons. They like Christian music, maybe. They give to the church. They vote at church business meetings. They have Bibles in their houses with even their initials on them. They have Bible verses on their refrigerators, maybe. All right? Uh, so they like Christianity. And they say and they do Christian kind of things. But they have never truly been born again. And because of what they do and because of how they live, they have deceived themselves into thinking that they're really a Christian. And this is what Jesus taught in Matthew 13 concerning the wheat and the tares. That there's a real and that there's a fake but looks real. That there are those who are in the church and those who love the Lord and those who are in the church who don't know the Lord. But they're in the church and they look the same. And this is what Jesus taught concerning the seed that hit the stony ground and the seed that hit the, the, the thorny ground. And what he is saying and what he is warning men about is that the church is filled with those who think they are believers and are not. And the thing about the ten virgins or the people in the church is that outwardly they look and they seem the same. I mean, all ten virgins are bridesmaids. All are gathered together at the bride's house waiting for the bridegroom. All fall asleep. All brought their lamps. All heard the cry that the bridegroom was approaching. And they all got up and started to go out to meet him. It is not until, though, they have lit their lamps that it becomes very evident that they are not alike. When Jesus told his disciples at the Last Supper that one of you would betray me, 11 of them didn't say, oh, we know it's got to be Judas, man. He's the guy. No, they were like, is it me? Is it me? Is it I? Because Judas looked just like the rest of them. And he seemed just like the rest of them. Well, what Jesus is saying is that there are multitudes sitting in churches today and have always been and will always be who think all is well. And they think that they are in his kingdom. But it will become evident when he comes again that they are not and they were not. You see, these professors have, have never come to a, a sense of the sinfulness of their sin and the high offense that their sin is toward God. And they have never truly repented of their sins. And they have never given and had a genuine concern for the glory of God in their lives. And they never had a zeal and a fervor for Jesus Christ. 
There was no heartfelt passion and love for him. Oh, they liked him and they believed who he was and they believed the words of his gospel, but they were never truly washed in his blood. They were never clothed in his righteousness. They had a lifeless, non-committed faith, which is really no faith at all. And they absolutely convinced themselves that they were his and they were in his kingdom. They expected eternal life with Christ without ever living for him in this life. They expected to dwell with him in glory without ever forsaking all now for his glory. And they believed they entered into his kingdom and will win the crown. Yet they never knew the cross, nor did they ever carry one. They think that the changes they made in their life or getting their act together or being morally upright somehow equated to eternal life. So they may have a knowledge of the Bible, but they don't really know, intimately know the God of the Bible. Nor do they really know their own hearts for that matter. Nor the sinfulness of the world that they live in. They are like the Jews whom God brought out of the bondage of Egypt. But because of their unbelief, many of them perished in the wilderness. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says in verses 1 to 5, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud. He's talking about now the time from getting out of Egypt and going into the wilderness, into the promised land. All of them were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. All, 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 right? For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Well, boy, what else could you want? How many more blessings can God bestow on you? How many more evidences of who he is can he heap on somebody? Verse 5. But. But with most of them, not some of them, not just a trickle of them, but with most of them, God was not well pleased. For their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Because they didn't believe. You notice they experienced tons of his blessings, tons of his blessings, yet they didn't believe in him. Thus, he wasn't pleased with them. So they died in the wilderness. So these are people who hear the word of God, but they don't do the word of God from the heart. These are the ones who Jesus said they built their house on sand and not on the rock. Matthew 7, verses 26 and 27, Jesus says this. And chapter 7 is kind of like the, the, the um, application of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said in, in verse 26 and 27, but everyone who hears these sayings of mine, you're hearing my word, right? You're hearing it and does not do them will be like a foolish man who has built his house on sand and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell and great was its fall. In Luke 13, his disciples ask him, they just can't believe how hard salvation is. They say, are there few who are saved? Like, who can be saved? This is the criteria, isn't it? Listen to what Jesus says right after that. He said, strive. Strive in the Greek means agonize. Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, notice the word many, for many I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Many are going to try to get in, but it's so narrow and it's hard to find. You've got to anguish, anguish to find the kingdom. 
So the point is, it's possible to be associated with the things of Christ. It's possible to be immersed in the things of Christ and yet end up, end up lost. End up lost. The bridegroom himself, of course, represents the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself called himself the bridegroom in Matthew 9, 15. John the Baptist calls him the bridegroom in John 3, 29. The delay of the bridegroom is the period between Jesus' ascension and his second coming. That's the delay. And the lamps represent a profession of faith, which is why all ten have one. Right? The oil. The oil represents the power of the profession, which is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the fuel which brings one to life and keeps one alive. And without the Holy Spirit, one is a false convert. But with the Holy Spirit, one is given a new heart and made a new creation in Christ. And it is the ministry of the Spirit to make one alive in Christ or to regenerate them, to make them born again. Paul says in Titus 3.5 that it is through the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit that we are saved, born again. Jesus said in John 6.63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. In Romans 8.9 it says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. So no spirit, no life. But there is one way to get the spirit, and that is from God, and it is a free gift from God. And Jesus sent him to indwell all of his elect. And no spiritual grace can be given apart from the spirit of God. And the evidence that one has the spirit of God living in them is that they bear fruit of the spirit, and they grow in the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those things are now a reality in the believer's life. We don't have it aced. We're not, we're not hitting the scale at 100% all of us, but we, we are those things. He gives us those things. It's not fruits, plural. It's a fruit. And we grow in those things. As we also grow in the virtues of the Christian life or the character of the Christian life found in the Beatitudes. So no person can live the spiritual life, a life of holiness, a life of faith, apart from or without the Spirit of God in them. It would be like trying to drive a car with no gas. It won't go. It would be like trying to run a computer without a battery or without electricity. It won't run. You see, the Holy Spirit gives the power that brings us from spiritual death to spiritual life and enables us now to live for Christ. And the foolish virgins, they don't have any power. Or they have no oil. Or they didn't possess the Holy Spirit, and so they weren't really saved. Now notice, they ask the wise virgins to give them some of their oil. And, and, and they say, we can't do it. And on the surface, that kind of seems rude, doesn't it? It kind of seems a little selfish, a little uncaring. But it's not. And here's why. Because you can't give someone the Spirit of God. You can't. You can't give them the grace that God has given you. It's not transferable. Right? You can't hand it down. There's no rub off when it comes to holiness. You see, no Christian, dead or alive, can give you what you need to be saved. Your godly parent or grandparent cannot give you their oil or make you alive by the power of the Spirit. 
Your mother may have birthed you into this world, but she cannot rebirth you into the kingdom of heaven. She can't do it. You're on your own. It's between you and God. And the only place to get this oil is from God. And without this oil, without the Spirit of God, there is no power over the penalty of sin. And thus, there is no forgiveness of sin. And then you're still under the penalty of sin. And therefore, there is no reality to your Christian profession. And that means your profession is a sham. And this is the great warning of the parable. This is the great warning of the parable. You may look like you have oil to others, as Jesus did even to the eleven, and sadly be totally void of it, and in the end suffer eternally for it. And by Jesus' calculations, there are countless people, many people in churches today, who are in this condition. By the way, this is not a popular message to preach to people at church. But there are many in this condition. They have mistaken feelings and emotions and labor and commitment for the presence of the Spirit of God in their lives. And they are greatly self-deceived. And they have a false assurance that they are destined for heaven. But that isn't the case, as we will see now in the third point, And that is the destiny of the virgins in verses 10 to 13. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in to him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you neither know the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Well, Jesus says the bridegroom came, and the five wise virgins, they went out to meet him, uh, and they went into the feast with him. And once they went in, the door was closed. And once the door was closed, nobody else could come in. The feast had started. And only those who were ready for it and prepared for it went in. And the door here being shut represents the angels gathering Jesus' elect from the four winds of heaven to himself. And it is similar to the door being shut on Noah's ark once Noah and his family entered it. And everybody else was outside and everybody else was being brought to judgment or in their case perished in the flood. So once the door is shut, it is never going to be opened again and no one else can enter it. And the foolish versions are panicked and mortified and they cry out, Lord, Lord, open to us. Hey, it's us, the bridesmaids. We're part of the wedding party and we've been waiting for you. Haven't we done many signs and wonders in your name? Didn't we serve you and give our lives to you? Didn't we, or weren't we active in your church? Weren't we members of your church for 10, 20, 30, 40 years? Didn't we go on short-term missions trips? Don't we do all kinds of things for you? Don't you know that we are your people, that we are your Christians, and that we believed in you? So let us in. Open the door. Open the door to eternal glory. And Jesus will say those crushing, heart-stabbing words. Assuredly, I say to you, I don't know you. I don't know you. It's one thing if I don't know you. That means nothing, really. It means everything if he doesn't know you. I don't know you. He says, you think you know me. You say you know me. And outwardly, it looks to others like you know me. But you don't know me because I've never known you. 
And that's because you were never one of my sheep. You never forsook everything and followed me. You never loved me more than father and mother and sister and brother and son and daughter. You never did. You cared more about your family and your hobbies and your entertainments and your money and your job and your home and your problems and your possessions and your schedule and your pleasures than you did about me. Listen, it was a big deal for you to go to church week in and week out. That was a big deal for you. You threw me scraps when I told you I wanted everything. I told you I wanted your life. I told you you had to be a living sacrifice for me. I wanted your life, but you were unwilling. I wanted everything. You would give me very little. And ultimately, I never had the throne of your heart. There were always other things on it. You never suffered for my name's sake. You never humbled yourself before me and said, your will be done, not my will. So who are you kidding? I don't know you. And here's the thing, I never knew you. I only know those who are mine. And the evidence that they are mine is that they live for me. Psalm 1, 6, read today. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. He knows the way of the righteous. Nahum 1, 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in a day of trouble. And he knows those who trust in him. He knows. When he says he knows, doesn't mean, well, I just have to, I figure it out. I intimately have a relationship with them. That's what he's saying. 1 Corinthians 8.3 But if anyone loves God, this one is known of him. 2 Timothy 2.19 The Lord knows those who are his. The point is, the point is the Lord sees way past the outward stuff. And he zeroes in on the heart. And he knows, he knows who the Spirit of God lives in. He knows whose heart is alive. And he knows whose heart is still hard as a rock. He knows it. So when you die, or if he comes back and you're still standing, and you are not born again, the door of mercy, that's closed, and it will be closed forever. The door of faith and forgiveness, closed. The day of salvation, gone. Gone forever. And I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth on the word of God. There are two churches meeting right here, right now, in this room. Two churches. One with those who have reservations for the wedding feast. Or those who have oil in their vessels. And one with those who don't. One with those who don't. And sadly, there are some sitting here today who are convinced that they have an invitation and oil. But they don't have either. And when Jesus comes again, the door is going to be shut to them while there are others sitting here who have genuinely come to Christ and faithfully live for him, and they will be ushered into the wedding feast on that day. And they will, they will get inside, and the door will be closed, and they will forever be separated from sin and Satan and pain and suffering and hardship. Because all of those things, all of those struggles and battles that they had in this life, that's outside that door, and that's not in. That is left outside. None of that stuff enters the banquet. And all they will forever know is pure blessedness and the brilliant glory of being in the presence of the, the glorious one, Jesus Christ. And judgment cannot touch them because, because there is no judgment for those at this feast. And that is because the bridegroom, 
Jesus has already suffered their judgment for them at Calvary's cross. And what captivated their hearts on earth in this life will now be theirs in all its fullness. And that is the Lord Jesus, the grand prize of the Christian life. They lived for Jesus. He was their life. And now it is their great gain to be in his presence forevermore. And nothing can come in from the outside ever to hinder that. But those on the outside will quickly come to realize that what they believed and what they lived was a lie. What they believed and what they lived was a lie. And they will then know for the first time the necessity of repentance. And they will then know for the first time the true value of salvation. And they will then know for the first time the seriousness of sin and how God detests it. And they will then know the judgment of God for it. And this is why we're told in 2 Peter 1.10, make your calling and election sure. This is why we're told in 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Test yourselves. Take a spiritual test of yourselves. So it behooves each of us to do a spiritual checkup on ourselves to make sure that we haven't deceived ourselves. And what a great mercy and what a great kindness it is for the Lord Jesus to give us this parable. You could be saying, and maybe are, this is a really hard sermon. I know it is. You think I like it? But he's giving it to us because he's saying some of us are self-deceived. That's why he's giving it to us. And it's a mercy and it's a blessing. And he keeps telling us this stuff. He tells us over and over and over again, don't think because you come here for 20 years that you're in. Don't don't deceive yourselves because the stakes are so stinking high. It's eternal. And it's a blessing and a warning that that he gives us this truth. right? What a mercy and a kindness to give us this parable and say yet again, people, make sure that you're the real deal. He's telling it to his disciples and he's telling it to us because the kingdom of God on earth is mixed together with believers and unbelievers, of those who have oil in their vessels and of those who don't. And by God's word, we are warned again today and challenged to follow the example of the wise virgins and to make sure that we have oil and to watch and be ready because we don't know the day and we don't know the hour that the Son of Man is coming. And that's the whole point of the sermon, the whole point of the text. Well, in closing, I'd like to close by saying this is really a super serious warning. And that's because if you are deceived and mistaken, you're going to suffer for this forever. And I know the easiest thing to do the easiest thing to do, and maybe, maybe you're doing it now, is thinking about someone else that you have your doubts of, right? Well, I have no problem, but quite honestly, I sure hope so-and-so is really listening to this and searching their hearts because I'm not really sure they're the real deal. They don't seem to live like a Christian should live. They kind of seem worldly to me. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't worry about anybody else. Worry about you. And I'll worry about me. Let so-and-so worry about themselves. You see, we need to examine our own lives. And I I need to examine my life. Because the last thing any of us wants to hear are those those terrible words that will echo in our ears, if we have them, for all eternity. I never knew you. I never knew you. And if you don't really have a Christ-like life, if you don't really love him and are motivated to live for him because of your love for him, then I got to tell you, Something may be terribly wrong. Something may be terribly wrong. 
And it doesn't matter what you profess. And it doesn't matter how Christianized you are. And it doesn't matter that you were born into a Christian family. And it doesn't matter that you were baptized or walked an aisle or you serve as the pastor or a deacon or an elder or anything else. It doesn't really matter. That's, that's outward stuff. What matters is what's going on on the inside. Has there been a regenerating work by God? Is the heart changed? Because if the heart is changed, you love him. And I've got to tell you, if you don't love him and you don't love his people, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say you don't know him. I'm not really going out on a limb. I'm, going, I'm being biblical. You don't know him. And so we need to do some searching. Some searching. So I would urge you not to hesitate or procrastinate if this is the truth about you. If you don't love him, if you're not given to him, if you just give him crumbs out of your life. Well, I got this and I got that and I'm so busy and I have no time for God because I got to do all these other things in life and my heart is so given to these other things that I really have very little for him. If that's the case, you need to repent. You need to repent. And you need to change. You need to change. And you need to set your heart upon him for the first time and follow him and find your satisfaction in him and him alone. Listen, oh, that God would save people that think they are saved but aren't. I read a story back, this was a pastor back in the 1800s. I was preaching for a long time, actually. And he's, he's preaching and preaching and preaching the gospel. And guess what happens? God saves him while he's preaching the, a, a sermon on the gospel. He realizes he wasn't even saved. He was broken while he's preaching. And, in, and, and, and he told the congregation, I may have been preaching to you guys for 10 years, but now I know the Lord. And so, listen, it doesn't make a difference when he saves you, just that he would save you. But it's pride that what's, oh, I already made a confession. I don't want anyone to think that I'm not saved. Don't make a difference what I think or anyone else here thinks. What does he think? Because he knows your heart, right? Oh, that God would save those who think they're saved and aren't. And oh, that God would save those who know they aren't saved this day. And some of you sitting here, you know you're not saved. You know you're not worthy. You know you're not washed in the blood. What are you waiting for? What do you think is going to happen? You think he's not going to call you to judgment one day? He will. And he must. His character demands it. Oh, that God would save. Oh, that God would save. And for those who genuinely know him this day, take comfort. Take comfort because your bridegroom is coming for you. And when he comes, it'll be the banquet to end all banquets. It's not going to just be some seven-day celebration. Right? Forget that. It's forever. It's a forever celebration because time will be done with and you will be with the lover of your souls forever and ever. So therefore, Christian, dear Christian, take heart. Take heart because he's coming for you. Amen? Let's pray. And I'd ask the ushers to come forward to take the collection after we pray. Our God and Father, we thank you that you have not left us without many warnings. And oh, Lord, how sweet it is to know you, how joyful it is to be in your family. Lord, we know it is a miracle that you must perform a great work. Uh, Lord, we pray for those who may think they are in the kingdom of God. They may think they have oil in their lamp. They may think they are indwelt by the Spirit and are not. We pray that you would save them and show them and break them and bring them to your Son. And Lord, for those who know they're not saved, O oh God, have mercy on their souls and bring them to the Savior. And now thank you, uh, Lord, for the monies that we would give. We pray that we would give generously. We pray we wouldn't give you scraps, uh, but Lord, we would give you the first fruits of our heart, 
uh, Lord, for how could we, uh, Lord, ever, uh, Lord, compare to the indescribable gift you've given us. So, Lord, uh, thank you for it, that when we use it for the furtherance of your kingdom and to the glory of your name, in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn more about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org.